You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Alden Wicker, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Fan favorite back on the show. You know, people, if they haven't listened to our first episode, it was, gosh, I think April or May of last year. And uh, <laughs> we're just kind of, you know, understanding what the whole pandemic was going to do. It's been a little while now, almost a year. So it's really nice to catch up. I've been following up on your 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 stories in various places. And you've, it seems like you invested a lot in in your website EcoCult over the past like six to 12 months. is What's been keeping you busy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and thank you for noticing. Well, there's a lot of contributors now. It's not just you. It seems like there's all kinds of people working on it. Yeah, it well, the, it was started by I had, you know, I had one person who was doing everything. And then she sent me into a panic last spring because she said, oh, I don't want to make content anymore. Um, and I thought, oh, no, okay. All right. So I'm gonna, I'm, I need to find a, a person to write my content. But then I got so many amazing applications that I ended up building out an entire contributor stable. Um, and it was really cool because I, I have contributors who who really represent a, a diversity of viewpoints. Like we have someone who is Chinese. We have someone who is of South Asian descent. We have someone who is Dominican. So it's it's been really good to have all of their different viewpoints and languages and experience brought onto the team. Now, you have always been kind of more freelance, right? Writing for a lot of different publications, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've always been balancing growing the website with uh, freelancing. You know, up until the pandemic, it was getting really hard to balance both of them. I was like most people who are entrepreneurs where I was just doing too much. And they're also starting to interfere with each other a little bit in terms of like goals and audiences and ethics even. So I was already thinking before the pandemic started, like I something's got to give. I have to figure out what to do with these two different career paths. Like, can I keep doing them at the same time? And then it sort of naturally got to the point where I realized, oh, I'm just going to be an editor of my site and edit articles from myself, but also from other people. And it's not going to be a blog anymore. Like, I'm not going to be the face of it. It's going to be about um, information and content that's that's helpful to people instead of sort of what I'm doing or what I think. And what? how do you describe EcoCult right now? What's the, the, the tagline? Uh, the leading international information hub for sustainable fashion. And, and it seems like it's a little bit more consumer oriented, but you, you do often have pieces that I, I think would really be helpful for, you know, startups and brands who are trying to, to be more sustainable in the world of fashion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, the, there's the consumer oriented content is what financially supports the site. So when you're seeing shopping guides, those are definitely for consumer. I mean, they're for anyone, right? Like anybody will would want to know where to get some cozy, um, sustainable pajamas. And often I have friends who tell me like, I was Googling for sustainable pajamas and then EcoCult came up. 
But those through affiliate links and also through sponsored spots for the brands that are smaller and aren't part of affiliate networks. And I can explain what that is to your audience but if they don't know. I, th- I think they're familiar, yeah, with kind of linking to these uh, brands in through various links that, that allow you to um, get a referral fee. Yeah, exactly. So those shopping guides do really well and they support, they financially support my ability to for me to write and also for me to pay other people to write these deep dives that are really meant for either people who are incredibly passionate about sustainable fashion or or industry people who need to get answers to their questions. What's your take on seeing um, so many journalists jump into Substack? And I saw that um, Twitter acquired this company called Review that's kind of doing a similar thing. And it seems like a lot of people, especially this year, I'm not sure if it's, you know, the pandemic or if it's something to do with the kind of broader ecosystem of of what's going on in journalism. But so many individuals are starting their own like subscription based um, newsletters and, and blogs and things like that. Yeah, good question. Um, I know I keep being like, should I turn my newsletter into a Substack thing? But the thing is, is that I feel like Substack, it recreates all the problems of social media because you still need to lean on social media and having a like a cult of personality in order to bring in enough readers. And from what I understand, the SEO is pretty garbage. And so I'm doing like knock on wood, Google never never pivots sharply, but I'm doing really well with just creating really high quality content that brings people in and then funding EcoCult through those affiliate links um, and through those small sponsorships. Well, it seems like a lot of of people who have found success through those like subscription based newsletters already had a brand as a journalist or like, you know, they people knew them. And so they can bring some percentage of their audience over there. But by definition, you're sort of trading volume in like number of eyeballs for revenue from a smaller, you know, set of super fans or something like that. Yeah. And and also the other thing is that it comes with the same problem as running your own blog, which is uh, there's no editor, right? There's no support team. There's no legal team, you know? So if I'm going to spend time researching things, I either want it to be supported by a team at a good publication, or I want it to be on uh, on EcoCult where people can continue to discover it and find use from it. And also, I can go back and update those any of the things I put on EcoCult, and I do that all the time when new information comes up. How often in, in, in some of your deeper dives does the um, kind of research and, and legal component comes in, into the picture in terms of <laughs> putting together like a big feature? Yeah, so that is something I do not do on EcoCult because uh, it is very risky. I've started to get more into investigative pieces, which I love um, for obvious reasons. Um, But I am very careful about only doing those pieces for publications that I know are very rigorous in their fact checking and have a legal department to look over the article before it goes live. And also has a contract that doesn't try to put all of the legal stuff on me should something go wrong. So that goes with EcoCult. Like, I don't have a legal team for EcoCult, so I'm not doing any investigations on EcoCult. Can, can, can you give me an example of, like, the type of thing that where fact-checking actually kind of, like, saved 
your butt or something like that because <laughs> I feel like most people who are not kind of in the, the inside baseball of journalism think like, yeah, fact checking has like been gone out the window over the past 10 years or something. And, and that's not even a thing anymore. Well, that is almost true. In the fall, I did a story um, for the New York Times with Elizabeth Payton, who's based in the UK, and she's a staff reporter. We were investigating a luxury Indian slash French brand that had just for years had been getting away with not basically not paying its workers way pre-pandemic. And there was a lot of research that went into that. And there was sort of people who were off the record or people who um, couldn't go on the record or people on the record. And then we sent it over to legal and the lawyer just, you know, uh, this is in the middle of the election too. So um, she was like, you can't put this, you can't put that, you can't put this. It basically, I forget what it was, but it was sort of like, if we couldn't prove exactly what we said, we couldn't say it. We couldn't impute like why this guy made the decisions he did. Like we could speculate, but we couldn't actually put that in the article unless someone went on the record saying that's why he did it. Like we would never be able to say like, yeah, he didn't pay his workers because he thought he could get away with it and because he's in two different countries. Like because we never got someone to go on the record saying saying that. Mm. That's actually why New York Times articles tend to read a little bit dry because they're very tight and they're very factual. What's the line where for you as as a writer, that's a good thing versus it it's a it's kind of this like bar, whether it's a bar or 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 some sort of like line that you can't cross that makes the process more frustrating? You know, it can be frustrating, but it's ultimately an amazing thing. And actually, I ended up hiring a fact checker for EcoCult this year because I enjoy fact checking so much and because there's so much. EcoCult is just so dense with facts and information. And she's been amazing. It's actually a really great process because a really good fact checker will also be a researcher. So if she thinks a source that we've linked to is not very good, she'll offer an alternative. She'll help us rephrase it so it's more factual. It's it's really a partnership and it's, it's amazing. Um, legal is a little bit different because they can be really aggressive about it. Um, and sort of you can like, it's easy to take umbrage and be like, you don't understand my creative craft, but they're saving your ass a little bit. Like you don't want to get sued. Well, actually the, the last episode is with this, um, friend of, and, and colleague, um, Ian Montgomery, who has basically been a fact checker for us at Lumi on a lot of our sustainability work. So if people are interested in that, we kind of get in the weeds of, of some of the, the work that he was doing on that in, in the last episode. I love that you have a fact checker because I have to say, I just don't take facts from brand sites because it's the rule that they don't fact check. <laughs> mm. And I've taught my contributors that too. Like, and my fact checker will bring that up too. She'll say like, oh, you, you can't, to one of the contributors, like this brand says that, you know, this ingredient is dangerous for your health, but there's no, there's no proof of that. So you can't, you shouldn't include that in there. But I've reached out to them to see if they have more information. Well, it gets kind of meta, I guess, because <laughs> going down like the next level into this conversation, because I think that there is this interesting area of, true journalism that brands are able to engage in because they don't have to, 
you know, they don't have to be advertising based organizations. So if they want to, and I think, you know, some companies like Stripe has, uh, I don't know how much you've like looked at their different, uh, both books that they've published as well as they have this um, publication that I'm now forgetting the name of. It's something like Input or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very nerdy. But, you know, because you, you have a different source of revenue, you can put some work towards that that is less, you know, just advertising oriented. You don't have to get the clicks. And I think that that's an interesting area. Now, there's obviously big trade-offs there because oftentimes brands have their own agenda or, uh, you know, they have a reason for why they're publishing that article or whatever it is. But I think there's something interesting there in terms of how the different models for funding like real journalism are shifting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually I did this like beautiful article for a large brand. It was sponsored content, but it was going to go up on Vox. And um, I had a really good time doing it. And I also really respect the brand and the work they do. So I was like happy to incorporate what they do into that sponsored content. Then the pandemic hit <laughs> and it never went live, unfortunately. And I thought it was it was really fun and it paid many multiples of what I usually get paid for an article. Um, so if there's any brands out there that want to hire me to do some sponsored content, especially outside of the fashion arena, um, I will be your girl. I might take you up on that. <laughs> we always need more help. Um, I think you do a great job of explaining these really complicated topics in sustainability to people, <laughs> individuals, and you're always kind of learning and i feel like when i read one of your pieces i'm learning with you i'm i'm going on that journey with you that uh, of you discovering something what what are some of the big things that you spent time investigating learning about uh over the past year yeah so there's a few things one of them was um well th some of the things i spent the year investigating in a big way was um I was hired by uh, a new foundation called Transformers Foundation, and it's this consortium of basically denim heads um, and denim industry people, you know, supply chain and uh, and um, cotton people, cotton farmers and everything. And they basically hired me along with a woman named Marcia Lanfranchi, who's a cotton sustainable cotton expert. And we got to interview the smartest people and the best the best factory owners in denim. I guess maybe not all of your um, listeners know about the fact that when the pandemic hit, all of these denim brands or fashion brands basically sent emails out to their suppliers saying, um, we're canceling all our orders. And we're not just talking about like we're canceling the orders in the future. It's like, oh, we know that you've already put the like 20 or 100,000 pairs of jeans on a container ship for the United States, but we're canceling that order and we're not going to pay you for it, which is insane. Right. And so I worked on this report with Marcia that was investigating why brands felt that they could do that and get away with it. Like what was the structural mechanisms that allowed that first of all led brands to think like yeah sure this is this is what we're going to do we're not going to take any responsibility for these purchases that we've made already and then sort of how that could be fixed in the future and and this was for specifically for the denim industry but it applies to all the, all the fashion industry 
So I think we actually talked a little bit about that on on our last conversation together. And that was kind of like a fascinating deep dive into some of the um, bigger supply chain pieces that you've put together over the, the past few years. Like, I feel like that's kind of all interrelated with, you know, the the fact that obviously a lot of this manufacturing is happening in countries in Asia where they are beholden to these brands, basically, especially in the fast fashion area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's two big there's a few big things here. One is that there's estimated 30% overcapacity in denim manufacturing specifically. I think this is for all fashion as well. There's just there's just too many like development organizations that put financial incentives into building factories to provide employment. Now if you're a brand, you can go to a factory and say we want these for $10 a piece. The factory will say it's not possible for me to make them at that price for you. And the brand will go, well, your neighbor down the street said they could. And so a lot of these factories are making things at below cost, especially now. The other thing is that, I mean, these factories just have no legal recourse. They don't have as much money as the brands. They can't take out a suit, a lawsuit in California and win um, and get their money back. So it's it's a really lopsided system. Another big area that we, you were investigating was the secondhand marketplace um, world of things like Poshmark and ThreadUp and Depop and all of these different ones that have shown up over the past few years. We've had the CEO of Poshmark on this podcast and someone from ThreadUp. So I think it's really interesting to hear kind of like the different perspectives on what you think is going on with that. I think um, I think last time we talked, we were kind of at this like uh, the kind of like Marie Kondo effect was something that was like bubbling up as a, as a point of discussion. And one of the questions that I've asked um, anytime I talk to someone who's involved in that area is whether we can actually see what I'm curious about is not just secondhand, but thirdhand, fourthhand. Like, is there a possibility that some of those businesses could lead to something like that? And But then I think that kind of in your investigation of what you saw, the kind of interconnection between what's going on there and the fast fashion brands and industry make it really difficult. Tell us a bit more about like what you kind of discovered from that research. Yeah. So I so that story for Wired focused specifically on Poshmark. So I cannot speak to um, thread up or some of these other ones yeah yeah they also have different business models uh slightly yeah yeah thread up's different um they own the inventory yeah yeah they own the inventory so poshmark doesn't own the inventory and basically i came to the conclusion that poshmark is just the gig economy for stay-at-home moms we should describe just just for people to understand i mean it's similar to ebay but it's very focused on fashion yeah, so it's just it's pretty much just fashion. I think they have some homewares too. So basically what happens is it's if you took the peer-to-peer resale of eBay and combined it with sort of the algorithm of Instagram and Pinterest. So what ends up happening is it's it's not really focused on like they keep talking about entrepreneurs, like how you can build your business, but that's not really how it works. Like like any social network, you are the product. Like you're the like it's not it's not selling clothes. Like you can put your stuff up on there, 
Uh, you can take your clothes and you can put it up there. But it's a lot of work. And then on top of the work, the basic work that you might do for eBay, which is like take a picture, put in your information, describe it, list it, keywords, et cetera, market research, whatever, you have to sit on the app and interact with it because it's a social network. And these two different things, being a successful entrepreneur involves finding economies of scale, time savings, and cost savings. Hanging out on a social network involves hanging out <laughs> yeah. for a large amount of time and interacting. So if you don't hang out on Poshmark and take all your listings and reshare them to the top of the feed one by one, by hand, every day, multiple times a day, nobody will ever find your stuff to buy it. And is is it from your perspective, um, someone can just go and sell like an item one off? Hey, I've got these like five to 10 things that I don't really care about anymore that I want to sell. Um, I don't know if those things make it in the algorithm. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't used it enough to really be able to say. Or is it that like these marketplaces are really trying to emphasize these kind of more pro users and push that kind of behavior more um, than kind of the more casual person who who might be shopping or selling these one-off pieces here and there? No, I mean, what's really fascinating about Poshmark is that you can never find economies of scale or time, or time efficiencies. So if you're trying to sell, if you're casual and you're literally just cleaning out your closet and trying to sell everything, if you break down the time it takes to do everything I just described, including this the social aspect of like following people and sharing your stuff and dealing with people liking it and commenting and asking questions and bargaining, there's a haggling process involved. Mm. At the end, you're going to be like, I made a $5 profit and that took me an hour total of work. And that's not including the fact that like you made a $5 profit or like a $10 profit, but that doesn't include the fact that you originally paid full price for that item in your closet. You have to get into the entrepreneurial mindset to start start thinking about like, was that hour worth my time? Are there other ways I could use that hour to make money? I think it preys on the same types of vulnerable people that end up, you know, driving for Uber or... um being a task rabbiter, where it's like, I don't, they, they don't have other play, ways to make money. So the fact that they're making less than minimum wage is not something they even ever calculate or think about because like, it's, it's just money. It's just cash that they need to, you know, buy their kids, their back to school clothes. And the difference there between Poshmark and other marketplaces that might own the inventory is that they're doing some of that work for you. You, on, on the Poshmark app, I guess they're saying that, I guess you keep more of the profit, but you have to do all of the work or something like that. Yeah. And that might work. But the thing is, is that re unless you're really good at research and you know where to find the good stuff that's being un like sold for very cheap and you have like a good understanding, you're not going to do better than a thread up. Like thread up, I'm sure they have some amazing algorithms and like market research that tells them when they get a box of stuff, what to keep and put on a mannequin and try to sell and what to toss in the charity bin. But people have this weird attachment to their clothing. I was saying all this to a friend of mine and he, he's a guy, um, very successful uh, 
video journalist, right? And I was talking to them about this and I was like, people have this attachment to their clothes where it's like they value them much more than anyone else will value them. Mm -hmm. And people are always trying to find like a good home for their clothes. Like they just, they just, you know, especially if it's like nice in their eyes, they, they just don't want to donate it. They want to see if they can get money out of it. And um, he was like, I was like, just donate it. Like, just, just donate it. Like your time is worth so much more than like trying to find someone who will pay you $5 for this thing. Unless you want to like do a swap with your friends and it's about community or, you know, or you're on your local free cycle. I get it. But like, I don't think it's actually a good social activity to like hang out and like haggle over prices with internet strangers. I mean, that's just me. And it was funny because we like moved on in this conversation. And then a few minutes later, he was like, yeah, I have this leather jacket. Um, It's really nice. I'm going to see if I can get some money for it. And I was like, you're doing it. <laughs> what? You're doing it. Like you're, you have this attachment to this leather jacket. Just donate it. Let Goodwill get some money out of it. What's your perspective on the implications for reuse and sustainability out of kind of this this idea overall that maybe if you can put some of these things online, they can they can actually prevent people from buying new things? Or do you think that that is not really that behavior is not actually kind of balanced out, I guess, with the you know additional footprint of shipping these things and maybe people are just buying more stuff anyway? Yeah, I think that you might really hit the nail on the head there. I I don't, nobody's done research to see if people are replacing new purchases with secondhand purchases. They might be treating these secondhand online shops like fast fashion things. Like I, people say like, oh, you keep it out of the landfill when you buy secondhand. And that could be true. But most of the things that end up in the landfill are not the kind of things that someone's going to pay money for. Like, there's just it's I mean, I think you see that when you send in a box to thread up or you go to Buffalo Exchange and try to turn in things. It's like there's a lot of stuff that they just don't think is gonna sell. Um, and it's gonna go to the charity shop and you could try to sell it on Poshmark, but there's a reason why they're rejecting it. And so I haven't seen any research on actual consumer behavior around secondhand fashion, whether it is reducing the amount of textile waste going to the landfill or being shipped abroad, and whether it's replacing new purchases or just my worry is that it is encouraging people even more to see fashion as a like all all this fashion is like temporary objects that don't really have to to look at them as if they're uh disposable water bottles instead of you know a like a nice purse that you take care of and you keep and it's you know it's something that you really value um, and you picked out because it's it's something that can be passed down to other people. And I, I just don't know. I don't know. It could be either way. A couple years ago, we had Nellie Cohen on the show who ran um, Warnware, which is Patagonia's um, repair and resell program. And I think um, since then, actually, a lot of other kind of outerwear brands have gone down that path. And I'm curious, I, I guess, like, when I when you think about the world of resale, whether repair is involved in it, what what should we be shooting for it as a, a, or in the in the fashion industry? Yeah, I mean, Patagonia is a really interesting 
case study because one, their target market are like outdoor hippie people. So these are not people who are chasing trends. So it's okay that that an uh, that an item doesn't you know that falls out of uh, fashion. I mean, the, the, they've been selling the same puffy jacket for forty five years or whatever. So I guess it's yeah, it's not a big deal if you've had the same pair, same Patagonia fleece for thirty years. Like it's gonna look the same and might even be cooler because it's like vintage. But also, I mean, this whole repair and resale model only works for high quality clothing. And Patagonia makes really, really high quality clothing because that's what they do. They're an outdoor brand and also kind of a professional brand. And so um, I hope that the rise of the repair, share, rental, resale economy will start incentivizing brands to really focus on quality and longevity of product because if they're willing to take back their products to repair and resale, they're going to start noticing which products are falling apart really quickly and how, and they're going to start fixing that because that will help their margins on this secondhand business. And the other thing is that it also only works for really timeless brands. There's a reason why the leading fashion brand that's doing this is Eileen Fisher. I mean, they've been selling the same pair of viscose pants for 30 years. (laughs) They know exactly what they're getting back from their customers. And we've had, yeah, we've had uh, the person who runs that uh, on Well Made as well. So we got all of the kind of like looking at all of the different models of reuse. And just last week, we um, talked to the founder of On Running. I don't know if you come across their shoe, the Cyclone shoe, the subscription-based shoe. Oh, Have you seen yeah. this? Yeah, I did hear about that. I think that's, I think that's great. I think it's a great idea. So I think in general, there, this is something that we come across a lot in kind of the concept of reuse, not just in in fashion, but in packaging as well. Like when you think about reusable glass bottles, for example, you have to change your perspective on what the item is from something disposable to a piece of inventory that you own. So if I, like you said, if I'm, if I'm Patagonia or another brand, and maybe this is possible in, in other categories that where, where things haven't, it hasn't been explored enough. Um, and I think these um, shoes from On Running are kind of an interesting example, which is that we're putting this material into the world, whether that material can be reused as more of a raw material, or it's aiming to stay kind of the same type of product ultimately. Um, yeah, I think that kind of depends on the the exact you know thing that you're going for. But how can we move more in that direction is really a question. Yeah, and I think one really important thing to note on this conversation is, I think there's just there's just going to be a limit of how what um, individual companies can achieve in this area because take back requires infrastructure and if you have brand loyalty the way Patagonia does. I think, or Eileen Fisher, um, I think it's really easy. And also you're a big enough company with enough product. It's like, you're going to get your product back. It's going to be a less than 1% of what you actually make every year at first. I don't know how much that's going to grow, but you're going to get your product back. The problem I see is, I call it the TerraCycle problem, where all these brands that make packaging that is not curbside recyclable pretty much anywhere 
are leaning on TerraCycle, and I'm sorry if you're a TerraCycle fan, but they're no, they're, I am. I, 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 you're gonna get me in trouble because I'm on the other side. I think TerraCycle is greenwashing, to be honest. But um, yes, because yeah. all of these corporate brands are like, oh, we don't have to figure out how to make this recyclable. We'll just tell people to send it to TerraCycle. How many people yeah. actually collect their cigarette butts? And send them well, and the, to and then the transparency. The transparency um, is just terrible. You, you you don't know ultimately what what that uh, where, where that ends up going. You don't actually have. There's very little data on what the the little that actually does make it back. Um, what it gets turned into and how it's processed. Yeah, I have no. I mean, I've like. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, remember, I remember hearing about the crazy sh- stuff that a zero waste blogger would throw in her TerraCycle box, and it's like, oh, that's how she got down to zero waste. She just took anything that she didn't know how to recycle and put it in the TerraCycle box, and was like their problem. Yeah, so basically incentivizing bad behaviors um, and just kind of slapping uh, a you know a logo on there and saying like that's you know somebody else's problem is not really solving the root cause here. Yeah, exactly. And so when you come back to like something like fashion, even if you're a huge fashion company, like, well, Levi's has a take back program. You're only going to collect a small part of what you create to recycle because there's just no easy way for people to, to do it. And you're relying on people to go out of their way to bring your product or send your product back to your company and so a lot of the startups I talk to that have take back programs, they'll tell you like, oh, we actually haven't collected enough to to like we haven't we're waiting to collect a one shipping container worth of our product so that we can send it off for recycling. And they haven't gotten there yet. Right. And and yeah, and I'm and I think everyone's kind of been focused on this idea of circularity as a goal, but <laughs> you kind of have to make it through the first cycle of these things that have been designed to be circular. Um, and, and I feel like we're just at the very, very, very beginning of that even. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think, I think it's really interesting and I love that companies are testing this out. But one thing that I, I noticed, I tweeted about, so what was it? The World Economic Forum put out a report. It's not peer reviewed, but they said in the report that like 45% of the fashion industry's global greenhouse gas emissions could be cut by putting the factories that make the stuff on renewable energy. And then like another 20% could be found with like efficiency upgrades and stuff. And then 2% could be achieved through uh, recycling. We hear so much about circularity from brands, but Levi's is the only brand that I've seen that has said, like, we are helping factories invest in efficiencies and upgrades and equipment. And all the other brands refuse to to put any money into the part that could cut half of the the industry's emissions or more than half of the industry's emissions. And they're focused on the recycling because the recycling is visual. It's what you interact with as a consumer. Yeah. And also it's profitable, right? Like all of these brands will tell you that their their take back and repair and resale programs are profitable immediately. So that's another thing that I've been thinking about a lot this year is just like brands are the ones that have the capital, especially these multinational brands. They have the capital to fix this problem. The factories do not have the capital 
at all. They're struggling. I think we're going to see a huge contraction in the market. A lot of them are going to close. Hopefully, it'll be the unethical ones that will close. They don't have the money to upgrade. There's technology out there. Right. I mean, just the cost of solar, for example, has come down so much over the past few years. Yeah. In terms of installing that on factories. And, and that to me, that seems like a, a huge opportunity. I, obviously, in the fashion industry, you also have all kinds of issues around dyes and, and, and uh, washing and water usage and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I mean, solar panels are great. I don't think you can run a factory off of solar panels from what I understand. Like they're a supplement. You also need to run the boiler. Basically, you need to be on a, a renewable energy grid. So until Cambodia and Sri Lanka and India and Myanmar and Indonesia upgrade their grids, there's some stuff that can be found efficiency at the factory level, but there needs to be like more renewable energy at the country level as well. What other kind of new opinions have you developed over the past six to 12 months? New opinions. Um... New opinions ever. I always have so many opinions. <laughs> <laughs> what are the ones that you kind of crystallized for you um, during this pandemic? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I'm not sure if we talked last time about social media. I forget, probably, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, this is an opinion. I, I shut down my Alden Wicker Instagram account, which is a big move for someone who writes about fashion or someone who wants to be a thought leader in fashion. And I basically gave those 30,000 followers to EcoCult. And then I just hired someone to run the account for me. And I told her, I said, I don't care about engagement. I don't want you to try to grow the account. I told her to come up with a social media plan. And then I was like, no, scrap all this. All I want you to do is when we put up an article, just Tell our followers somehow that we have a new article and then throw up reading links in our stories and that's it. And and I have to tell you, it's one of the best decisions I have ever made. Sounds less stressful than uh, trying to keep up with everything that's happening on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I just realized like for me anyway, Instagram was not sending me traffic, referral traffic at all. There, there'd be people who would be like, oh, you have a blog? Like, yes, I have a blog. That's the whole point. <laughs> well, everything is work. But if you feel like you're working for the algorithm, that's the part that always frustrates me when I think about that kind of stuff. It's like, even just personally, um, when I think about Twitter, <laughs> I have so many drafts that are like half-formed thoughts where I'm like, is my art form Twitter? Like, what am I What am I doing right now? Like, why am I even wasting my time? Yeah, I think the world would be actually be a lot better place if people, instead of going to Twitter, opened uh, a journal and wrote it down in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's actually, I've actually been journaling a lot. That's been my best uh, hobby of... Uh, 2020 and 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 will continue um i've been that's been really fun for me but i want to go into the um course that you were working on yeah uh, for latin american brands and what you learned from that describe for people what what you were up to with that yeah so when the pandemic hit it was like everything i mean carnage and i actually didn't have much to do at the time because all of the publications were slashing their budgets and so a friend of mine who used to work for the UN and now is um, 
she was developing these, she's been developing these courses for Latin American fashion brands. And she wanted me to do one um, about trying to enter the, um, the U.S. Uh, market for sustainable fashion. And um, so I was focused on that. But so it's a bilingual course. It's in Spanish and it's also in English. But then I realized that there's a lot of concept. I mean, I just poured everything that I'd ever learned into this course. And I realized that there's a lot of concepts in there that brands in the United States haven't wrapped their heads around yet. You know, I I talked about how at this point, the sustainable market is so well developed that you have different types of sustainable consumers. Um, And specifically talking about fashion, but I mean, these, this applies to so many different things. You have different consumers with different motivations and different price points. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to market what I call the woofers, um, like the you know, the people who do the organic, like the, the people who go off and live on an organic farm in another country for a while, or they're backpackers. They're incredibly passionate, right? So you think, oh, I'll just sell my product to them because they care so deeply. But the problem with marketing to them is that they care so deeply that they have an aversion to capitalism and spending money. <laughs> so why? what's the po- how many of those folks are there in the market as well? Seems like a narrow I don't know. Audience. I mean, I feel like there's probably not a lot. I mean, you just you want to sell to them because you're like, they're passionate. They're going to get right. it. Right. They're going to be the power users of the thing. Yeah. But they are the ones like in the fashion world. They're the ones that haggle the artisan at the Guatemala market down on one of those little coin purses. Like you do not want them <laughs> to be your customer. <laughs> I feel like I need to go to Urban Dictionary. Those are the woofers. I call them the woofers. It's world organic something farming. It's this thing. Okay. That, but like you can call them also like backpackers or or socialists, even like nothing against socialism. I think democratic socialism is the bee's knees, but it's like what you want, if you're trying to market a sustainable product, you want the people that will pay the extra money that it takes to build a more sustainable and ethical product. It seems like that is a slice of the pie that's growing all the time. I think it is too. Um, there's also another slice of the market that um, I called the organic professionals. These are names I made up myself. But um, I, love it. I call them the organic professionals and they are the people that every single Instagram ad seems to be geared towards, right? Like Everlane got into this market first and then everybody else followed, right? And there are people who mildly care about sustainability, right? Like they go to Whole Foods or maybe Trader Joe's and they get the organic things at Trader Joe's, but they don't actually want to pay anything more for sustainable products because they've been trained by very well capitalized startups to think that they should be getting things for less than the competitors because of disruption and cutting out the middleman and blah, 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 blah. It's really hard to acquire them and customers at this point because everybody's trying to market them, market at them. So yeah, it's sort of like the Everlane crowd or um, Allbirds or Rothies, like that sort of thing. And the messaging has to be incredibly simple for them to to convert. 
So in 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 your course, uh, you know, which which it sounds like. By the way, is is it available still? Is that yeah, something it that is. people can? Um, if people go okay. to egocult.com, I believe it is. Um, I believe it's at the top, and if it's not, I will put it at the top. Um, oh, actually, you know what? People could go to aldenwicker.com, and at one of the links at the top is the the course. Um, What's it called? For brands, it's called um, how to enter the how to enter the sustainable. Oh, this is a really good question. <laughs> but if <laughs> well, you, if we'll you put a link, link in in the show notes, we'll yeah. put a link in the show notes. But it's something about how to enter the U.S. market. So yeah. just kind of coming back to that point about the audiences, what how do you f- phrase it for them in terms of what you know whether you're a Latin American uh, brand or or you're a U.S. based startup and, and you're kind of developing a, a product, what what is your suggestion about how to think about the different audiences and how to talk to them? Yeah, well, first you have to choose an audience, right? Which I feel like is a, it's a basic, but, you know, you have to do some market research and figure out like, okay, who is your audience and what do they want through sustainability? Because every type of conscious consumer wants something different. So you have to figure out what motivates them, right? Like, if, if they live in L.A., like they probably are interested in sustainability from either like a vegan perspective or they want to have like an inner glow and be healthy. If they're sort of this Davos international elite type people, they want products that are sort of like a secret handshake, right? Like they don't have logos, but they go to an event and someone goes, oh, oh, isn't that purse by so-and-so designer? Um, I picked it up when I was, you know, in this country at this event and um, they're such wonderful people, like that sort of thing. So you have to understand why are they going to pay more for your sustainable product versus the conventional product? What does, what are they getting out of it? Because nobody is buying something at this point because it's just sustainable because like it's very hard to define how much more you should pay for sustainability because you don't know what the net benefit is to the world. Like how much more should you pay for an organic cotton t-shirt? Should you pay $5? Should you pay 10? Like we don't, we don't know. So it really goes back to the fundamentals of what value is the sustainability or the ethicality of your product providing to that particular type of consumer. What, what audience are you in and what do you call that bucket of people? (laughs) Well, I don't make a product so much. Um, but when uh, your persona as a buyer, where where does it fit in? Oh, oh, oh. Um, what is my consumer? persona as a buyer? I would say I go back and forth between, um, like, sometimes I have the privilege of being surrounded by people who I would consider, like, this international elite, like, Burning Man, you know, traveling a lot, artists, like, they want, like, really unique items that tell a story and um and sometimes I'm just an organic professional right like I just I just want a fairly sustainable option that gets that gets me what I need <laughs> I guess when what if a brand is thinking about what should I do to impress Alden what what does that look like oh well first of all um you just take everything I say with a grain of salt because I'm I'm a weirdo freak <laughs> when it comes to sustainability <laughs> um I what would does say that mean? To impress me, you need to, when you say that you're sustainable, you need to say why and um, be really specific about it. Give me an example. What does that mean? Yeah. So I see a lot of brands that say like um, their whole proposition is we make long lasting classic fashion 
that is made with sustainable materials. Okay, well, what do you define as sustainable materials? Because your definition of sustainable materials might be different than mine, or it could be just wrong. <laughs> right. How do you, do you think there's a way to 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 answer that question succinctly that's going to fit <laughs> like on the hero area of a website? No, I don't think there is. But what I do tell brands to do um, in the course is to nest your sustainability into the site. So when someone gets to your site, the sustainability actually shouldn't be shouldn't be in your hero image. Like I see a lot of brands make the mistake of showcasing their artisans at the top or doing that sort of thing. Really, you should have your product at the top on a model or, you know, just a beautiful shot of your product. And maybe you can say very succinctly, like what the sustainability proposition is like in that carousel at the top. But people who care about sustainability, they'll click, they'll just make sure there's a link at the top or at the bottom prominently it says sustainability or our mission or something like that. And then they can get off that ride whenever they feel like they have enough information, right? So they might be the kind of person that says like, oh, they're sustainable. Great. I'm going to, this looks nice. I'm going to buy it. They might say like, okay, I'm going to click through. And then it said, and then, you know, they have, there's like very brief paragraphs that say like, we use sustainable materials. We work with factories that are certified you know, by Ocotex is non-toxic, you know, we use or, uh, organic cotton and uh, blah, 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 blah. And if I'm the kind of person who cares really deeply about, say, animal welfare, I might click through and the animal welfare part to learn more about that. So you, you nest all the information back so that whenever I get to the point where I'm ready to shop, I can jump off and start shopping instead of being sort of presented with a fire hose of information as soon as I get to your site. So you're saying it's okay to use the term sustainable if there's a way to get to what that means? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, not everybody is going to click on that. And that is okay. I mean, it's really about conversions. And you can't pay your artisans fairly if you're not converting. So it's sort of like writing, Right, You have to learn all the rules and be able to follow them before you start breaking them. But I think a lot of social entrepreneurs, sustainable entrepreneurs try to break all the rules at once and then get really frustrated when it's, it's really better to like understand the principles, build a business around the basic principles that most entrepreneurs build their business around, and then start tweaking the rules one by one in a really careful manner to see what's working and what isn't working. Do you want a brand to you, the weirdo, like person who's like super knowledgeable about this? Like, do you want a brand to make you think or do you just, you know, your priorities, like you said, you know, whether it's animal welfare or toxicity of the dyes or something like that, like, or, or are you open to their perspective on like what they have to say about sustainability? Oh, no, I tell brands to not educate consumers. Don't try to educate consumers. And this is why. I see a lot of brands, they try to do the education, but the problem is that consumers start associating your brand with that terrible thing that you're trying to educate them about, even though you're against that thing. So if you put pictures of water pollution on your site and say like, typical denim is so polluting and ours is not, deep down in their lizard brain, they're going to start 
associating your brand with dirty water. So I say to brands, like, let people like me do that work and just offer a solution and do it in a really positive way. Like, instead of saying, like, wow, dirty denim is so dirty, like, ours is cleaner, say, our amazing new denim is uses 90% less water than typical denim to make and have a beautiful picture of your beautiful denim or a clean stream or something like that. But I don't recommend that brands try to educate their consumers um, unless it's about something that's sort of positive. Like if, you, if you're a cashmere brand, you can educate your consumers about like the adorable process of shearing a cashmere goat, <laughs> right? When you're putting together these roundups, what else are you looking for that really, you know, impresses you and is going to make you want to put that particular brand or product near the top? Yeah, so there's a few things. One is that they have to be aesthetically pleasing. They have to be very clear and factual in how they're more sustainable. I want to read through their stuff and sort of get the sense that they know what they're talking about and they've explored every angle so that I can trust that, yeah, yeah, they, they're doing everything that they can. Um, and they're not greenwashing. Another thing that I look at is, is it a unique product? And this can change really quickly. There used to be like six sustainable swimsuit brands and now there's like 30 of them. So what is different about your product that merits inclusion and new? What problem are you solving for consumers where they couldn't find that thing before in the sustainable version? And then finally... I mean, it depends on site to site, but for EcoCult, I mean, we, you know, we have to make money. So we look for brands that have, have affiliate, affiliate relationships or on some of the affiliate platforms and we'll put them up at the top. If they're not, we'll pitch them a spot up near the top. And then sometimes we will have brands on that um, we don't charge anything for because they are so interesting and fascinating Someone like Pangaea, which is the super popular brand that sort of does their own textile innovation and then puts it into like really popular, um, interesting sort of loungewear, sweat, sweatpants. They, they're just extremely innovative and different. It would be like we couldn't have a coat article without including their flower down coat. It would be egregious not to include them. But and then also over the past year, we've been um, putting in brands that are black owned also for free. Um, so that those are some of the considerations we run through. Are there other lessons from your course that you feel apply to, to every brand or that more brands should be thinking about? Yeah, I think every brand should really go through their products and you just don't want to accidentally greenwash. So before you start making claims that your product is sustainable, which is sort of a binary thing, which I don't think is true, right? You can have a brand that's more sustainable or a product that's more sustainable or less sustainable, but there's no, it's not like you get a badge that's like, this is sustainable. Really, you really need to go through your supply chain. You need to look at all the research. You need to consult the experts and like really understand a 360 view of your brand so that you can answer any questions because, you know, customers are going to come at you for silly things, right? They're going to, they heard of influencers say something and then they're going to come on your page and say, well, 
I, you know, how dare you source alpaca, those poor alpacas that die for your alpaca sweaters. And what's going to help you from getting angry and having a customer service issue (laughs) is to be so familiar with your product and sustainability and, and have some humility around what you don't know so that you can have those conversations in sort of a calm manner and say like, well, you know, we did a lot of research and, you know, we sourced from indigenous farms, which were not related to, you know, the video that you might have seen at a large farm. And here's some more information on it on our website so that you're not caught flat footed by someone yelling at you about like on a public forum about something that you're supposedly doing wrong. Do you think that you know, going back to these companies being based in, in Latin America and why they wanted to come to the U.S. market, do you think that there's there's something there in terms of connecting, you know, the American consumers to brands like more, that might be closer to the raw materials and, and kind of sourcing the, the whether it's I mean, you mentioned alpaca, but like the, the materials locally? Yeah, I think there's. There is something to be said for the raw materials, but I think it is a little bit more about the artisanship and having brands that are actually run by people from the countries instead of uh, from instead of by Americans who like go down and scoop a bunch a bunch of stuff up and then sell it out out of context. There's some really gorgeous artists and brands that sell you know traditional mochilas from Colombia or you know there's a lot of different examples of this, and I think they're just as capable of doing beautiful design. There is a language barrier, unfortunately, that you don't find in other continents, which has prevented brands owned by Spanish speakers from entering the U.S. market. Um, And then there's also sort of shipping stuff that comes into play. It's really expensive uh, and also really difficult to get reliable shipping of product from South America up to North America, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that vertical integration and you see this all the time if you're browsing Amazon and you there are all of these brands popping up that are really just sort of the Chinese manufacturers who have been manufacturing for US brands who are now saying, well, we'll just sell this product under our own brand. It's interesting to see more and more manufacturers and people who are maybe closer to the source kind of go down that path. And I'm curious to see if that continues to happen, especially because it's become so easy, you know, through marketplaces and and the new technology that makes consumers in the U.S. more accessible, I suppose, to to, to companies that are based outside. Yes, but there's a ceiling to that, right? Like when you're talking about these Chinese factories that are selling directly to consumer, they're usually selling the cheapest commodity stuff. And when you think about it, at this point, large fashion brands, because they don't really own or take responsibility for any of their supply chain, they're basically just glorified marketing companies. And, you know, a lot of factory owner, I mean, there's a factory owner that was emailing me this week because he wants to, from Bangladesh, and he wants to sell straight into the U.S. market. I don't really know how to tell him that like it's not going to work because he needs needs to build a marketing apparatus of American PR firms and people who are in the United States and graphic designers and everything in order to become a successful company that has any sort of margins or else he's just going to be like 
more of those Chinese brands that that sell you stuff that looks good in the ad and then it gets there and you're like, oh, this is awful. As we wrap up here, what are the things that you're looking forward to in 2021? Are there things that are on your radar that you're hoping to see or that you're curious about? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I have no expectations for 2021. <laughs> I feel I feel like everyone's sort of like that kind of like we don't know what's going to happen and we stopped bothering trying to predict it. Yeah, exactly. I was I I I was applying for a job just for fun, just to go through the process basically. And the woman was like, "What's your 5-year plan?" And I was like, "I don't have a what's plan. My next Do you week have a plan?" plan? <laughs> <laughs> like 5 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah. I get I get what you're saying. Well, I will say that I really, you know, I I am working on a book. And I really hope I can travel this year. I'm really coming to the end of like, it's been great to like be able to do all my work from home, but I'm really ready to get on the ground and like do some factory visits and workshop visits and like meet smart people in person face to face over dinner. I don't know. That might not happen till the fall, but that's that's all I could hope for this year. Well, at least we have we have something to look forward to. Uh, I'll be I'll be first in line when I can get my my shot and uh, of the vaccine and um, and be there with you. Yeah, and then I can come out to LA. We can hang out. <laughs> All right, thank you, Alden. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation, as always. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.